Before we get started with this episode of American Rabbi Project, a few quick things. First of all, if you like what you're hearing, please consider donating to this podcast. You can do so by going to my website, rabbiproject.com, and clicking on the Donate tab. Also, I am officially on the speaking circuit, so to say. If you're interested in having me speak to your group of any size, please shoot me an email, justin at rabbiproject.com. Once again, justin at rabbiproject.com. And of course, I can do virtual presentations. Finally, everyone interviewed for this podcast speaks solely for themselves. Welcome to American Rabbi Project, the podcast about American Judaism from the perspective of rabbis across the country. I'm Justin Regan. This project started when I decided to leave my job as a public radio reporter to take a road trip across the U.S. And there certainly is a romance to driving around the country. It's something I clearly felt and have been capitalizing on in this podcast ever since. However, there can be times when the scenery gets bland. Specifically for me, that was when I was on the East Coast. Let me clarify. I think the East Coast is gorgeous. I saw New England's autumn colors, Shenandoah National Park, Appalachia, and some beautiful stretches of the Potomac River. But when you're on the highway, the only thing you tend to see on the East Coast is a corridor of trees on either side of you. And that's pretty neat at first, but it starts to get redundant after a couple of weeks. That's what made the coastal regions of Georgia and South Carolina so special. The scenery changed. There were palm and magnolia trees, lush grasslands, and Spanish moss covering all of it. I especially appreciated the tropical feel with winter approaching. Of all the places I had been on my road trip, to that point it was the first time I was in an area like that. And one of the jewels of this region is the city of Savannah, Georgia, which made it fitting this town got the distinction of being the final place I visited before starting my return journey. Georgia, debtors, warriors, and comedians. Not only is Savannah pretty, it has a pretty energetic scene. Well, at least I'll have to take people's word for it. The day I was there, it was beyond mellow. You see, it wasn't until I had driven all the way to Georgia that I remembered in the South, everything is closed on Sunday. Except, of course, for the synagogues. Hello, my name is Robert Haas. I am the rabbi of Congregation Mikveh Israel in Savannah, Georgia, the third oldest synagogue in America, the oldest in the South, and we are both a wonderful and growing synagogue and a full-time museum. And I think my responsibility is to help bring people together, to help people find their niche in the Jewish world. This is one of several episodes profiling congregations that predate the United States, and Mikveh Israel does by more than 40 years. The first Jewish boat arrived here only five months after this place was settled, so they're still cutting down trees, trying to figure out how to build this city when we, when we arrived, and uh, that's very rare. It's almost unheard of. The colony of Georgia was originally formed in 1732 by James Oglethorpe as a place for debtors, destitutes, and others who avoided the prisons by going to America. Essentially, wealthy Europeans sponsored poor Europeans to leave Europe. This also happened in London's Jewish community, where prominent members sponsored 42 Jewish travelers. Many were Sephardim, Jews of Iberian origin who had been displaced by the Spanish Inquisition. At first, the trustees of the colony were hesitant to let them in. 
But then Savannah was hit by a yellow fever epidemic. And so Oglethorpe, who was in charge of the community, invited the Jews to come and become part of Savannah in exchange, this man, Samuel Nunez, who had escaped uh, persecution in Portugal, moved to England and then came here, agreed to treat the community because he happened to be a doctor who specialized in these type of diseases. So in exchange for saving the community, Jews have always been given full rights in Georgia. Really, that was a big help. I think the biggest help, though, was that, you know, we weren't Catholic because, you know, Catholicism and you know, the Protestants were having a lot of issues. But very soon after the community was founded, Catholics were allowed. And actually, the original rules of the community is you couldn't be a member of this community if you were Catholic, a slave old holder, or a lawyer. The original slavery ban in Georgia was not for moral reasons. The trustees thought it would make the settlers lazy. And Georgia residents were rewarded for capturing runaway slaves from other colonies. There were no Jewish signatures on the first petition asking to end the slavery ban, but that was because the signers didn't let Jews sign it. And once the ban ended in 1751, Georgian Jews also took part in slaveholding. That includes documented cases of enslaved individuals doing work for the congregation. Similar to Kahal Kadosh Beth Elohim in South Carolina, Rabbi Haas says Mikveh Israel is also figuring out how to handle this tainted part of their history. No, no, I think it's a real issue. I mean, we live in the South, so we know uh, the horrors that occurred here and recently and a long time ago. And it's something you have to say, hey, you know, we're Jewish, we're proud to be Jewish, but hey, there were Jews who did terrible things. There are Jews who made mistakes. There are Jews who had slaves. Um, there are Jews who looked the other way. But again, Judaism itself is a beautiful thing, and people make mistakes, and people didn't do what they should have. During the civil rights, though, we can be very proud that a very high percentage of the people who, who were led the civil rights movements were Jewish. It's an incredible percentage. In the South, where Jews were just trying to fit in and very nervous about losing everything for the support, a lot of times they were the ones who gave jobs. They were ones who helped behind the scenes, but not being in the focal point or being in the front because of fear of what was going to be happening to their families. So yes, you got to you got to own up and say, hey, we made a lot of mistakes and we did a lot of things we shouldn't have. Uh, but also people did a lot of things they should have and did good things during those periods. So it's kind of a balance, but it's not, you know, you don't want to hide from it. As Haas took me around the museum, he explained that Mikveh Israel gets about 15,000 visitors each year who come to check out one of America's oldest congregations. The Savannah Jewish community makes and possesses a lot of history, including what Haas calls the pride and joy of their collection, the two oldest Torah scrolls in America. They came here in 1733 and 1737, and they're both about 550 years old. We think they came from North Africa, Spain, or Portugal. Uh, they're written on deer skin, which is uh, not really done anymore because really you need to have a domesticated animal, but obviously they had a way to domesticate deer back then. And as you look at them, you'll see that even though they're 550 years old, they're really incredibly 
well-written and in their amazing shape. They're in better shape than our Torah scrolls written in the mid-19th centuries by far. They're in such good shape that the scrolls were not retired until a few years ago. Mikveh Israel is also one of several colonial congregations to have in their possession what might be one of the earliest signs that America could be a better place for Jews a letter from George Washington. He sent a personal response after the congregation congratulated him on being sworn in as the country's first president. Well, Washington's letters really talks about the freedom we have in America and how it's an open community for people of all faiths. It's really quite ahead of his time. What a brilliant man, but also just it's incredible to see that they were looking at the future, saying we're going to be welcoming to people of all faiths and backgrounds. It's echoed in the responses we got from uh, uh, from Thomas Jefferson and from James Madison. We sent them notes telling them that we were building our first actual building, and they sent the congratulation notes. So they were very open to religious freedom, which is really quite incredible. And we know they had a lot of issues with, with the way they treated slaves and such forth, and that's something that, uh, you know, they're going to have to you know, live with with their reputation. It started a tradition where Mikveh Israel writes to and receives a letter from almost every U.S. president, including most recently Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Mikveh Israel is a congregation of other firsts as well. In our wonderful, amazing museum, we have what we believe the first circumcision kit ever brought to America. It's really quite incredible. It was brought on the boat in 1733. We, uh, we used it until about two years ago when we retired it, which was awesome because our insurance rates just we just fell. It was awesome because that's a joke. We didn't really use the circumcision kit, but it is the first one we believe. Many early Jewish settlers helped ingrain the Jewish people in the growth of the new community and the eventual country. That includes Georgia, where congregation member Mordechai Sheftel became the highest-ranking Jew to serve in the American forces during the Revolutionary War. At one point, he was captured by the British, who then greased Sheftel's utensils with lard after he refused to eat his pork ration. Abigail Minnies and her five daughters operated a prominent tavern in Savannah and helped supply Patriot forces during the war. And there's Raphael Moses, whose work in agricultural technology helped to create Georgia's iconic peach industry. But the Girl Scouts were founded in Savannah, Georgia. And when Julia Lowe founded the Girl Scouts, she picked five people to be the leader, and three were from our congregation. So 60% of the first Girl Scout leaders were Jewish. Over the years, things have changed. Internally, Mikveh Israel, like KKBE in Charleston, transitioned from traditional Sephardic to reform in the 19th century. British rule ended. Georgia was a colony, a state, a confederate state, and then re-entered the Union. The institution of slavery was legally ended with the 14th Amendment, and Atlanta overtook Savannah as the economic and political capital of Georgia. However, Haas says Savannah is still the second largest Jewish community in the state. We are such an integral part, I believe, of this community. If you look at our congregants, I doubt that there is a nonprofit board in this community that doesn't have one of our congregants at least on it, or one person from the Jewish community. It's really something that we're quite proud of. And he says it's a growing community. For a very long time, Savannah remained small, a small city and looked very inward and didn't have a lot of people coming and moving here. And that has changed quite a bit in the last 30, 40 years with uh, SCAD, which is the, the 
Art College with Midnight in the Garden of Evil, which is a book that came out talking about how eclectic Savannah was with the uh, new laws about how you had to maintain uh, historical structures downtown with the port growing. So we've become really a, a really quite a mecca. As for Haas's story, he's held pulpits in places like Dallas, Houston, and L.A., and also volunteered for a year with American Jewish World Service. Like many other rabbis, it wasn't always a given he'd become one. In another world, Haas could have been a lawyer. I was going to go to law school and college, decided I wanted to switch and become an elementary school teacher. A lot of people think I just did it to upset my mother, and I want people to know that that was definitely not the only reason I did it. But I soon realized that all my extracurricular activities were in the Jewish community. I was a youth group leader. I was volunteering. I was away at weekend retreats all the time. So it sounded like a nice way to do something interesting and be there for others because as a rabbi of a congregation, you're kind of a jack of all trades. I do a little bit of everything. You know, this morning I had Sunday school, then we had a grandparents program. And then I just talked to somebody about Hanukkah because they need to teach somebody else. I have this interview, then I have a wedding, then I'm going to a friend who's being honored. So it's really quite a wonderful way to spend my time. I asked him how it felt to be the senior rabbi of such a storied congregation. It feels really quite nice. I mean, it's it's powerful to be part of a tradition that goes so far back as we know Judaism. But here in America, to be part of a synagogue that predates the United States itself is quite rare. There's only six congregations that existed before uh, President Washington was inaugurated. So it's a powerful feeling to know that I represent uh, a southern congregation that's been here so long, but it's also nice because it's so connected to this city at large because people in this community know if there's an interfaith thing or if they need a rabbi or if they want to hear what's going on in the Jewish community, they can come to the synagogue that's been here for so long. And he says it's also a very supportive community, something that was shown after the mass shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. The tragedy occurred one day before Mikveh Israel's Shalom Yal Food Festival, an event that draws thousands of visitors annually. Haas says there were some tense meetings with the planners who were concerned about security and if anyone would show up. At one point, they even considered canceling. Of course, we decided we're not going to cancel it. If you cancel it, that means they win. And secondly, when the day came, not only did people come, they came out of everywhere. We had people who had never even thought about coming who came just to support us. I cannot tell you how many ministers and priests and imams after service said, you need to go to Monterey Square and celebrate the food festival with Congregation Mikvah Israel because of what happened. We ran out of food at 2.30. We're supposed to go to 3. There was not a crumb left. We had people who came at 2.45 at 3, even though they knew they weren't going to get any food, just to say, I'm here to support you. Similar to the previous episode with Rabbi Greg Cantor from South Carolina, Haas thinks safety is important, but it's also critical not to hide your pride. But we're here to celebrate being Jewish and part of this community. We're here to celebrate with everybody else because, unfortunately, these crazy people, whether it's groups or individuals, are not attacking Jews. They're attacking anybody who's different. And it just so happened that in Pittsburgh it was a Jewish community. Before that, it was a, a gay community. Before that, it was an African-American community. Before that, it was this community. And that. there's always going to be people of hate who can attack and really 
they can transfer who they're attacking from one minority to another without any issue. It's just whoever they're upset with at the moment. How do I empower myself by taking somebody else down? But Haas doesn't think that's close to the majority of Americans. And in his part of the world, he sees a lot of cooperation. Haas himself takes part in many interfaith activities. So yes, anti-Semitism is on the rise, and we're all worried. But also, I think interfaith meetings and work together is working together is probably on the rise as well. Interfaith work in America is a beautiful thing. If you go around the world, in a lot of places, you just don't see it. You see some respect, but the connections, the closeness, is something that I think is indigenous to America. And I think that has to do with this idea that in America, everyone can find its place. Everyone, whether you're from one country or another, whether you're this religion or another, you can find your place in America. Specifically for Jews, finding their place can involve asking themselves if they are more American or more Jewish. And it's a beautiful question to ask because it really shows that we care about being Jewish and we're dedicated to this country. Is there going to be balance? Of course, the balance shifts one way or the other, depending on what's going on, of course. But the mere fact that we can be in America and ask that question is incredible because for countless generations, Jews were not allowed to ask that question. You were Jewish. You're living in our country. You're an outsider. You do what we tell you to do. Um, assimilation is, is a problem, one that we have not faced as much in recent centuries because we haven't been allowed to face it. And so it's a challenge. And I'll tell you what, it's the best thing in the world to have this challenge because Staying Jewish just because we're not allowed to do anything else, staying Jewish because I'm fearful, is a terrible way to stay Jewish. Uh, if we want to stay Jewish today, you have to really want it because there's so many things out there. I can leave Judaism and nobody will even bat an eye. He says this makes it more important for houses of worship and Jewish institutions to give people a reason to be involved. I asked Haas if these talks about change lead to any generational disputes in his congregation. 100%, and that's how we want it, because every generation has to find its own way. But, you know, it's always going to be changes, and if it doesn't change, it doesn't evolve, then obviously we're going to fail. Obviously the Bible's the Bible, and the texts are the texts, but how we relate, how we relate to the outside world— music, all of these things need to evolve with us. And so when a generation doesn't do that, then that's a generation that's probably just going to leave Judaism because everybody needs to have that connection. When Haas isn't debating the future of Judaism or showing off centuries-old circumcision kits, you can find him doing stand-up comedy. It's something that certainly stuck out to me because I am an amateur stand-up comedian. And for those of you listening in, I want you to know in my script, the word AMATEUR is in all caps and bolded. And probably spelled wrong. Like many comedians, Haas used to think he didn't have the chutzpah for stand-up. But then he tried it and was hooked. Today, he does open mics, charity shows, and occasionally works with traveling comedians. It is so much fun. I really enjoyed it. I think everybody needs to have their hobbies. So my hobbies, of course, as you look at me, are, you know, rock climbing, skydiving, cliff diving, and uh, motor car, motor cross, and uh, car racing, and then comedy. And espionage, of course, as well. Well, that one I'm not allowed to talk about. Being the rabbi of a historic congregation, Haas is a clean comedian. He describes his style as a straight-laced, sarcastic Bob Newhart type. 
But like many comedians, he can use laughter as a way to address serious issues. I do a little comedy about hate, about how hate is a terrible thing and how people looking at the world from their perspective and thinking I'm right and everybody else is wrong, so I have to hate you is really strange. I'm trying to do some family comedy now that I have a child working on that. So it's always fun to try and see a situation and then see how it can become funny for either the sermon or for a program, or for doing a comedy set. Interestingly, Haas says since he started performing stand-up, he's actually put less comedy in his sermons. But when he does tell jokes from the pulpit, he wants them to be meaningful. I love being a rabbi. It is an incredible opportunity to work with people in such a wide variety of ways. And it's just so meaningful to do it uh, for celebrations, but it's also meaningful to be there in times of sorrow. It's great to work with people of other faiths, but it's wonderful to work with the people in our community, both in my synagogue, but in other synagogues who are not members. It's great because this congregation lets me do stand-up comedy as a hobby, just for fun, and they take great pride in it. But again, I also know it's, you know, it's my hobby right now and it's something I enjoy, but I do it in a way that it adds to being part of the rabbinic you know, world. You know, it's, it's not something that detracts from it. So if all my jokes hit during this interview, that's great. If they didn't, please email me so I can make sure to make them better for next time. Once the interview ended, Rabbi Robert Haas left to officiate a wedding in Mikveh Israel's sanctuary, one of the celebrations he gets to be a part of. As for me, I went for a walk along the somewhat empty streets of Savannah. It was a cloudy day and most stores were closed, but it still felt special. I knew that once I left this town, every travel from here on out would be heading back home. When I left Arizona months earlier, I never thought I'd make it this far. When my trip was all said and done, the route I took would make for a much wider and grander oval than the one I originally drew on the map in my planning phase. The same can be said for this project. I really didn't expect so many rabbis to graciously give me their time and thoughts, and I didn't expect to hear so much but it clearly set me on a path I didn't think I'd ever go on. Now, let me be clear. This was the final interview I recorded on the trip, but it is not the end of the season. In fact, there will be a new episode in two weeks as always. This was the trip that started my quest and it only taught me how much more I had to go. I hope you continue to join me on this trek. American Rabbi Project, Georgia, Debtors, Warriors, and Comedians was written and produced by me, Justin Regan. I would like to thank some of the people who have donated to this podcast, Cindy Richter, Sharon and Herb Cohen, Jules Greenberg, Zach and Heather Abrams, Emily Perry, and Brian Friedman. Your support makes all of this possible. I cannot say thank you enough. If you are also interested in supporting American Rabbi Project, please go to my website, rabbiproject.com, and click on the Donate tab. A special thanks to Kylie McCormick, who has been instrumental in the background information for these last two episodes. Also, thanks to Derek Pova for handling the web stuff and explaining complex financial transactions with beer coasters. Additional thanks to Jeremy Crones, Beth Vanderstoop, Sarit Rathbone, Dylan Abrams, and my parents for the assistance. Please feel free to reach out to me by emailing justin at rabbiproject.com or follow me on Twitter with the handle at rabbiproject and facebook.com slash rabbiproject. And until next time, shalom and safe driving.